Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend James Poulos for a conversation in our postmodern conservative series. James is the author of The Art of Being Free, How Alexis de Tocqueville Can Save Us From Ourselves. A book I admire as much for its confident wit as for its nobility and which I have had occasion to recommend before. Go out and buy it folks, it's great. Beyond author, James is many other things, a musician, a cultural critic, and the executive editor of American Mind, a publication of the Claremont Institute, which I also heartily recommend. He writes in too many places to remember them all, but if you follow him on Twitter, James G. Poulos, you can find it all. Last time we did a podcast, we were talking about David Lynch and Twin Peaks. This time, we're talking about elites facing the digital revolution in technology. One last thing I should add, James is actually Mr. Postmodern Conservative, the man who started this blog before the late Peter Lawler took it over and introduced me to it. So this is a happy meeting of oldest and youngest, and evidence that 10 years later, Postmodern Conservative is still a going concern. Now on to the conversation. Hello, James. How are you doing? Where should we start with our cultural criticism today? Uh, Well, you know, I'm just doing some tweeting this morning, and uh, I guess we have to talk about whether Nazis are really going to re-enter the world, which I'm skeptical of. Likewise. There's no, there's just the environmental conditions have changed. You know, nobody really wants to build a new, an old new regime. I mean, look at what's going on in France. You know, Paris would have fallen in three days if these people all decided to just turn into a a mass politically violent movement. But that's not the way it works anymore. Exactly. I think there's a systemic weakness among elites that makes them scared. Primarily, they cannot tell that anger and even outrage are primarily forms of helplessness now. They're not calls to action or precipitations of action. But I don't see any elites that figure that out that realize that there's actually much less danger for them if they can keep their cool. Well, you know, it's still early days. This sad process could take another 10 years to play out. Have you ever formulated for yourself what you think is likely to change in the next 5 to 10 years? Oh, well, I think that the prevailing secular folk myths in the West are going to continue to fail people. And people are going to continue to realize that the sort of template of modern fantasies that used to have juice in them as catalysts for agency and identity are no longer able to deliver those things. And so what, you know, what happens after that? Well, violence is always a safe bet in any historical age. I'm sitting here looking at Tim Wu's book on sort of the anti-big tech, antitrust. And the thesis, I'll just read off the back of the book. It says, history suggests that tolerance of inequality and failing to control excessive corporate power may prompt the rise of populism, nationalism, extremist politicians, and fascist regimes. We're in grave danger of repeating the signature errors of the 20th century. And I just think that's fundamentally incorrect. We're not in grave danger of repeating the 20th century. The grave danger is that we're thrown into a fundamentally new technological and social configuration that no one has any idea how to process. Yeah, I think so. This fear of repeating the 20th century comes from the delusion among elites that they are who solved the problems of the 20th century. And if they lose, then it's back to that. 
right. which is a, a nutty right. way of thinking about things. But I guess it's that way now. People who are on top think they're also in charge. But those are very different things. Yes. Well, and, you know, our failing institutions are all that stand between today's docility and a new dark age. Therefore, our institutions must be failing because bad people are attacking them. Yeah, as a form of blindness, as a misunderstanding both of their own history and of the current circumstances, it's impressive in its deludedness. The well, what choice have they? Yeah. But what's happening at the bottom of the totem pole is the working class is saying, what choice have I? You know, I'm not going to get retrained. I'm not going to learn to code. This is who I am. This is what I do. I was just watching Heat last night for the first time in many years. And you've got De Niro and Pacino sitting there at the diner, both saying to each other, well, this is what I do, and I can't do anything else. So, you know, the elites have painted themselves into a corner of their own. And they really think, you know, like, there is nothing else that politics can be that would be just, right? We build these institutions, we sort of get this thing up and running, and we purge real politics from the system of governance. And we make as much of the system of governance economic as we can, and we make as much of economics as we can into a financial phenomenon. And that's the best we can do. And there's just no flexibility or resilience in that system. And so their range of potential responses is just very limited. So I think that's partly because although our elites now have a sense of themselves as a class that wasn't quite there before, I don't think really anybody in elites believes that there's a lot of come and go, there's a lot of shifting any of the ideas of future progress that were popular even up to a generation ago. And although that's happening, I think they're also paralyzed by it because the class doesn't have any purpose. They would have to change structurally to allow for new elites to emerge among themselves. But that would mean that those new elites would have to serve a purpose. But the elites you already have don't themselves serve a purpose. Well, they're an end state. they're, They're the finish line. They're there as a marker of historical progress. And this is why the college thing matters so much. The elite at least had this sort of script they could run where it's, you know, well, we'll use the universities to just suck more people up into, you know, respectable society, right? We can at least busy ourselves converting obscure members of the great unwashed into full human beings. And now the feeling is, oh, maybe we sucked up all of the candidates that there are for that process. And now we're just left with this sort of rump of unusable, you know, deplorables. Now what do we do? I think a lot of this points to the fact that the Great Society was not some great new project. It was preparing for the end of history. The social contract in America changed to saying there'll be welfare for the poor, more or less in terms of health, and there'll be welfare for the middle classes, more or less in terms of education. Everybody's Mm -hmm. afraid of death and health is going to fix them. Hence the political fights you've seen over the last decade or so over health care. Because that's the last thing all Americans have in common. Everybody stands in judgment before the doctor. (laughs) Well, just walking down the street, you can see that different forms of health and sickness have prevailed over modern America. And there's a sort of anxiety about health among the relatively fitter and the relatively less healthy that there wasn't, you know, even 40 years ago. Yeah. 
I think that's actually underrated how important the class separation around fitness, health, energy, youthfulness is and to what extent contempt for lower classes and contempt for the pathologies of health or of the body are combined and for that reason inseparable. You can't have ideological disagreements with people whose physical presence repels you. Well, you've got, on the one hand, a group of Americans that in effect says, I'm so unhealthy, I can't do anything else but try to get well. And then another group that says, you know, I've reached this sort of historical end state where there's literally nothing else for me to do but engage in the routine of wellness. Yeah. In a crazy way, it's now plausible that the healthy rich will simply outlive the sick and dirty poor. And between self-destructive pathologies and just differences of lifestyle, it's going to become more and more pronounced in the short term. Rich people aren't dosing themselves to death with drugs or alcohol or what have you. Well, it depends on the rich person. LA is a great place to be reminded that even the most well-off are often among the most damaged and dependent. Yeah, sure. And I think that you could more broadly say that elites that are based on methamphetamines and antidepressants in their educational and in their middle-age crisis stages aren't really stable. They're not the Greek gods. They advertise themselves as being by way of a good gym workout before the job at 6 a.m. It is also a generalized problem there, but that's the part of medicine and modern science that is perceived as empowering to some extent. Well, and again, what's the alternative? That's the question that I I see looming over so many of these seemingly untenable or ultimately fruitless activities or mores is just this terror of what else do you expect us to do? Yeah. I think that that's right. I think that in a funny way, we really did reach the end of history with the end of the Cold War. And history is just restarting, which is what inevitably happens at the end of history. That peak, in a certain sense, of liberalism is not self-sustaining. And part of that is really people are purposeless. We're in a situation where elites would have to strengthen their own institutions. But those are the institutions they rely on. They take their purposes from serving their institutions. They don't feel that they're giving purpose to those institutions instead. Our elite institutions are not vehicles for achieving anything. They're fortresses, as it were. If you can occupy those, if you have control of them, you control the strategic political terrain in America. Well, we obviously uh, just dove right in here. But what is it that you want to be sure to to address? Yeah, we turned in a very different direction. It was... uh, (laughs) I was looking to talk about technological changes. Well, you know, I, I think in. they're interrelated. And, or, yeah, we can uh, if switch you, to you this. Start, start talking about one, you'll end up talking about the other. So let's try and do this. I also, when I look at the technologies of political communications, at the press, at social media, I find it hard to criticize what's obviously stupid or mindless because I ask myself, what else is there? Both politicians and journalists seem to play caricatures of things you saw in American politics a generation or two back, and it's not clear for me that they have any alternatives within their grasp. What else could they be doing? I don't think there are good answers to that question in the way we are now. 
Well, yeah, and I think, you know, at the end of the modern age, you know, tipping over into what I guess would be postmodernity, a lot of the conversation around that sort of terminal aspect of Western life was economic or psychological or cultural. You know, you think of the later novels of someone like J.G. Ballard, which were just kind of psychological murder mysteries set in the most terminal parts of the Western world, seaside resort communities in Spain or what have you shopping malls, that sort of thing. But then I think things changed as people began to recognize what digital technology is doing to us. And it's introducing a why bother question in a different sort of way. So it's not just an elite of prescription drug addled, you know, vaguely hedonistic people with no discernible jobs sort of lounging naked at poolside in the sort of archipelago of hotels and mansions. Suddenly it's, well, perhaps the whole system of economic activity around the imaginative production and interpretation of fantasies is no longer viable in the way that it once was. And today happens to be one of those days when a mass murderer has become briefly famous. But from where I'm sitting, what it looks like is memes, which just a few years ago seemed like the cutting edge of technological development, now seem more like a sort of dwindling resource that really has traction only with losers and children who don't even take them seriously but consume them like candy. Uh, you know, imagine being in a frame of mind where you think that your best shot at achieving sort of heroic, historic progress is by shooting up, you know, 50 people and publishing, you know, some high concept fan fiction. That betokens a tremendous shift away from not just the model of political violence of the 20th century, but the whole logic of sort of economic and cultural production around these sort of creative dreams and well-organized fantasies that typified life before the digital age. Yeah, I think that's also largely underrated as a phenomenon, that all forms of celebrity are dying. We're not producing new celebrities because we can't. I think people are still trying to some extent, but you can no more produce a movie star now than you could produce another Che Guevara or any other kind of celebrity, vaguely heroic creature that's supposedly going to achieve a transformation, force events, and by forcing events, push history somewhere. Right. Here, the running joke for the movie people is, is all the Chris's. These sort of vaguely interchangeable kind of leading men, but they're not what's selling tickets at the box office. You know, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, Chris Pine. I think there's another one in there. There should be. <laughs> so, yeah, I have heard these people make other movies as well. I've even seen some of their movies where they're not Marvel properties. But yes. nobody watches them. And that's true of talented actors as well. Or anybody else who's talented. If you are doing the character that people are to some extent invested in, then that's a billion dollar movie. But if you're doing something that you thought was creative, then nobody's going to give a damn. And no amount of Marvel success can translate into success for anything else. These people well, and, are and you, not even yeah. typecast. They are either that character or nothing. We can't even make celebrities anymore. And this is, I think, one reason why the Me Too movement has been as successful as it has. This is an age of people waking up and saying, oh, you know, well, well, that person's interchangeable, too. They're expendable, too. It was very easy to just let Al Franken sink back into obscurity. Nobody cared. It was obvious that there would just be someone else who would be able to step into that role and do an adequate job of whatever that role would be. 
and, and just look at the creative class, that sort of toiling under tier of people who want to reach that sort of A-list or celebrity or terminal role as members of the cultural economy. And, you know, what are we discovering? This is just, again, what, like 10 years after Richard Florida got us all excited about the creative class and how, you know, if you wanted to revitalize your city, just get a critical mass of these people in, in your city and, and they'll really change things. And in fact, they're just franchises and they're incredibly uncreative. They all do the exact same thing. They look the exact same way. They think the same thoughts. They use the same devices. They're engaged in the same activity. It's a cul-de-sac. And that's shocking to people. America used to be quite confident that its creative energies had potency to them. And the discovery that perhaps creativity, even or especially in America, as it's been understood at least you know, since Hollywood first began, that's going to come as a painful, disillusioning shock to many people, you know, perhaps disillusioning because religion in America is still doing relatively fine. So we didn't experience that sort of crushing disillusionment that Europe did with regard to religion during the 20th century. But this kind of American cult of fantasy, I think, is really in danger of being shattered. And that's unknown territory for us. Yeah, I think that's true. When it was difficult to create celebrities, it was taken for granted that you could, both because you had the technology and the institutions, and because people were confident about the future. Now you could presumably create celebrities endlessly, because the technology is so much better and cheaper. The costs have plummeted, but it turns out that even faster than the costs, the advertising money that will keep the press going has disappeared, and everything like that as well. Nobody can make enough money because nobody can really persuade people to believe in the future. And so we have Facebook making what still appears to be a significant amount of money off of ads, even though Google has clearly shifted its business model away from ads and toward servers and sort of data delivery. And so people interpret this as saying, oh, well, look, Facebook is making so much money off of ads. Ads matter more now than ever. When in fact, Facebook is the only player making money off of ads. And it's just being concentrated, not because it's more powerful, but because it's weaker. Yeah, exactly. It's the last of a certain kind. The fact that social media finds it difficult to get advertising going again, I think, has to do with why social media appeared in the first place. It's not a new step forward. It's a temporary release for something that's on its collapse. People didn't escape into the future when once they could get online. People just managed to cope temporarily with the fact that there is no future or nobody has any persuasive ideas or practical ideas about what that future might be. It's not like Facebook itself can be the future. So far as I can tell, Zuckerberg is trying his hardest to imitate China, to imitate WeChat, to move away from the delusion that he can create public forums and globalized friendship through shared experiences or convergence of desire through likes and instead more end-to-end -end encrypted private conversations. But yeah, I, again, I that squeezes is, ads is, out of the picture. It does, and the way to make money, you know, the business model becomes just kind of what the credit cards do. And in fact, credit becomes the business model, including social credit, which is in some ways, you know, quite alien to the American experience. But in other ways, it remains to be seen. I mean, Americans have had a love-hate relationship with television from the very beginning and probably loved television the most because we created it. And to the extent that we felt really good about ourselves, we felt, you know, unbalanced. Like, well, warts and all, you know, television is still this sort of manifestation of our imminent power and genius. 
and national character. And so how bad can it be really? Well, if you know, sure, there's going to be some garbage on there, but you can always just change the channel. And, you know, we have the sort of wherewithal individually and collectively to manage our sins, even if they're traveling at the speed of electricity. And now, you know, that's another thing that digital has sort of called into question. It has presented televisual life with, on the one hand, you know, sort of enough rope to hang itself, right? Like suddenly, oh, you know, television seems to be getting a little boring or seems to not be making the money that it used to. Well, imagine if we just fully democratized television to its greatest logical extent and suddenly everyone and anyone can be their own channel or their own station, you know, with multiple channels. You know, you can be sort of as many avatars of yourself as you can grind away at producing on YouTube. And rather than perfecting the televisual, it's actually just turned it inside out, or as Marshall McLuhan might say, flipped it. And now the televisual is, as McLuhan suggested, merely content in a digital context. We've been so accustomed to experiencing television as a context that its change in the content is very disorienting. Yeah. And while the televisual was the context, it could produce celebrities. It reinforced to some extent an oligarchic division between the people who were in charge of the technology and the people who were passive receptors of it. But when once the technology has shifted enough that everybody is playing with it, we neither get more sophisticated versions nor do we get any more belief in what the technology can offer. And now that everybody's producing TV, everybody's trying to be a celebrity, turns out that all the ugliness of celebrities revealed as it's dying. All TV tends towards reality TV. All news and entertainment tends towards scandal. And it's less and less believable and less and less interesting. And so there's reason to think, as you suggested with Zuckerberg, that in some disquieting sense, China understands something about digital better than we do, and that we may be moving toward forms that feel alien to us. But I would caution, rather than stoking fear, that Chinese concept of anthropology is in danger of taking over the world. Um, I don't think that's happened, and I think the West has... There's more than one West, and there's more than one component of the West. And the U.S. and Europe have some shared resources, but also some very different resources, which are going to be unearthed as culturally we move away from or abandon or have taken away from us that sort of secular cult of the creative and the critical. Yeah, I think that the very idea that there is a unity to the West in any social, political way is collapsing. There's no project, there's no structure, there's no principle that brings various political communities together. That's just not there. And while there was enough power to go around, and again, the confidence in the future, things may have looked differently, and people were even obsessed with globalization. That's not going to happen, nor is any anti-globalization looking likely to succeed things sort of look more like themselves, different places and different peoples look more like themselves once the previous idea of a globalist future or an end of history collapses, or as I suggested before, maybe to simply fulfilled and it's disintegrated after that moment. It is not clear that Europe has much by way of a unity, but it is now clear that it doesn't have much in common with America. We can see both these points demonstrated by the differing responses to big tech. Europe is putting curbs on the big tech players in a way that just isn't possible in the U.S. right now. And also, there's no sort of consensus around it. Whereas in Europe, you know, one of the least controversial things, you know, is sort of slapping these fines and these new regulatory structures on the big tech companies. 
Yeah, and that goes with a certain fact that Europe never felt the need to imitate America in this regard. And mm -hmm. to develop these kinds of technology, these kinds of corporations, there was no desire to imitate in this regard, and it's not starting now either. You know, there may have been no contextual basis from which that kind of imitation could arise, right? Yeah. Exactly. And these differences were always there, but they weren't noticeable. Partly, American power has subsided considerably, but that's not the only thing that's being deflated. And the differences are just much more obvious now. And one, I assume in America, technology will really be a big part of the future, but in what shape? I don't really see it. It's clear that it's not going to be anything like Europe, but it's not going to be anything like China either. There well, that's are right. limits and to so... what you can import. In spite of it all, it does seem to me that the digital age is going to be one in which American exceptionalism is still very much intact and in some ways more salient than ever. Yeah, I think that's right. At this point, it looks strange because it's not clear that digital technology is winning the economic race because the various corporations emerging are that good. It seems like there are no alternatives. There's nobody else running in this race. Well, right. And under conditions where it's thinkable for the first time that there's going to be sustained and irreversible economic contraction of a certain kind because of technology. In some Western countries, that is going to cause regimes to collapse and to be replaced with new ones. Whereas in the U.S., I think the practice of democracy, the habits of democracy are deeper and stronger and more resilient in a way that will continue to show America to be exceptionally democratic in a way that specifically in Europe, other countries will find it easier and more plausible to move away from that kind of, you know, to talk about imitating the US or imitating the sort of French revolutionary model of democracy, where ultimately human rights are something that can be implemented in the world but in the French revolutionary model, they enter into political history as the fantasies of intellectuals and philosophers. Whereas in the U.S., natural right exists. It entered into political history as a reality. Natural right came to politics rather than politics having to go up into the clouds and, as it were, pull down the abstract idea of natural rights from the heavens. And I think that American experience is going to have staying power despite these kind of technological trends, potential to wrench other Westerners, I think, outside of the democratic mode, which is still, for them, just a very small fraction of their history and their collective consciousness. Yeah, there's another underrated thing, the extent to which democracy around the world is simply a function of American power and of the peculiar ideas of Americans. There are powers and there are limits in American democracy, even at the level of thinking, because Americans never really thought about politics in any other way. They, to some extent, force this on peoples anywhere else in the world. It's a uniquely American way of thinking to, say, conquer Japan and to think maybe they should be Democrats too. <laughs> Although, you know, you can ask the Japanese how well that project worked out. Um, but this is the, this is the exactly. drama. There and, are victories ahead. and defeats to these kinds of attempts, but some of them will prove short-lived because this was all along an American doing, and Americans aren't interested in doing it anymore. You know, and, and at the time, they were interested in getting it over with as quickly as possible. You know, the idea was you get in there, you tell the Japanese what's what, they come to their senses, and you leave. 
in the Japanese case, you know, it's interesting the distance in time that it took Japan to travel from basically a medieval civilization to a modern civilization was very compressed. And so even if the U.S. managed to kind of wipe out imperial fascism from the Japanese consciousness, there's still a very, you know, close to hand kind of medieval cultural substrate that I think continues to persist. I mean, you look at anime and what is anime about? It's about traumatizing technological experience, but it's also hugely about young people with a profound sense of shame and honor trying to figure out how to come of age. And that taps into a resource even Europeans have to dig a little bit deeper to get back to their medieval resources than in some ways I think the Japanese do. Yeah, I think that's right. And this points both to the future and to the past. You know, whatever the fate of Japan might be, it's perfectly possible that American power and good intentions poison Japan and it just dies off, as it were. There's no law that says that political communities really are permanent. We don't have enough experience of them disappearing, but they do disappear. And it might be that the contradiction between what America had to offer and, on the other hand, what it is that Japanese people fall back on, what their memory really is, or the old politics that still animates them to some extent, they might not match. Again, you can see that for a long time, while America was powerful, people thought that if you have a new democracy like Japan, where the same party always wins elections, that's perfectly fine. Although nobody would say that about any other democracy. Mm -hmm. Sorts of weird facts they were never paid attention to. Or the fact that you'd have a modern, individualistic world with all the technology, but for a long time in super modern technological Japan, a large part of the male workforce is privileged people. Up to a third had life contracts. Again, these sorts of weird facts were not taken very seriously. They're not going to work the way Americans work or even Europeans. Maybe they'll work another way, who knows? Or maybe they won't. But on the other hand, this recovery of their medieval past or what it means to be Japanese, in some ways that will play out in other places too, and it is a harbinger of the future. When once the idea of American technological power transforming the world subsides, people will have to ask, whatever it is that they are doing, why does it matter? And that means, who are they? And so, not exactly nationalism, because that's more of a 19th century thing, but some thinking about what makes the community what it is. How do you even grasp who we are, what we feel? Well, th right. So this is an important, a very important piece of the puzzle, too, which is that American nationalism is as exceptional relative to nationalism as an abstract idea or other nationalisms in practice as America is exceptional relative to other political configurations. So the people out there who are, you know, ringing the alarm bells about the horrors of nationalism and how nationalism always threatens to break our fragile civilization of free market economics and social tolerance and drag us back to this primitive state of tribalistic solidarity and atavism. It's just not going to be an effective argument if you're speaking about nationalism in the abstract, because we know that what a nation is and what the politics of the nation is look tremendously different whether you're talking about an American context or outside an American context. And if everything that we've said so far is remotely true or hovering near the truth, yet to be disclosed, then that dynamic is going to become ever more important too. American nationalism is just going to be a different sort of social and political practice than other forms of nationalism, and we need to be prepared for that reality to show itself forth if we want to be good statesmen or just you know people who feel like they have a grip on what's happening to the world. 
yeah i think that's true it's another difference that's going to reveal itself more since mid-century liberalism triumphed we've just had too much comfort in a political sense a certain reassurance about which institutions are conducive to collective success and therefore to a kind of convergence since technocratic ruling classes were dominant more or less wherever people thought of themselves as civilized or western these kinds of ruling classes aren't particularly good at ruling and in as much as they have produced all sorts of catastrophes they're not legitimate anymore but that will reveal different countries underneath the technocratic rule in different places and i think elites who think that nationalism is going to be either a new version of fascism or even something more 19th century romantic are deluding themselves the resources of nations tend to be somewhat older and the ways they are activated are not obvious the 19th and 20th century models of nationalism weren't very sustainable in any political sense and there's no real reason to believe that they were very smart or at all adequate to what they were dealing with so even as ideas or cultural memory these things are deluded and they delude people who orient themselves by it I think what you mentioned earlier that there's a very big difference even between American and French ideas about rights and the relationship between the people and their rulers when it comes to rights that too will reveal itself it's likelier that Americans will find some ways to act because they're much more used to it and if this is true of positive developments it should also be true of negative developments and so americans should take it much crazier if things aren't working out as they expect than would people in england or france or germany and i think we do have a lot of evidence of that it's not clear how people are going to figure things out but it is clear that they're not taking it lying down now that they've realized that things are going to help That's right. And there is evidence that Americans in at least some important ways are just better at managing craziness than Europeans. Many Americans, you know, they're sort of like functioning alcoholics except they're just functioning crazy people. There are all kinds of like vents and outlets and channels into which not clinical insanity, but you know, but palpable craziness can be directed or ameliorated or sort of broken up and disseminated often constructively through American life. And it doesn't some of those require ruling are, classes to deal with it. That's right. And some of these things are, yes, the creative economy, but not all of them. You know, we didn't have Hollywood-style America for most of America's history. And yet, as Alexis Tocqueville attested, there is that sort of common American experience of being driven on toward unreachable experiences past the point of reason. It's not always pretty, and it's definitely not always just. or beautiful or salutary but it is resilient and you know Europe's history with craziness is just orders of magnitude more horrific and brutal than America's history with craziness yeah american restlessness and resilience are flip sides they're part of the same form of community and you'd have to transform america into a place in which if you drive for a day or two or jump on a plane you end up somewhere where you're surprised mhm so long mm-hmm. as americans on the other hand just recognize each other mm-hmm. then i think that points to the fact that the character of the people is still what it was mm-hmm. and natural rights are as much an experience for americans as anything mm-hmm. else the kinds of changes that technology brings i think will reveal that because you will no longer have the assumptions of triumphant liberalism 
to some extent, the point of what happened in the last two generations under televisual conditions of communications was a resurgence of the old sophistic idea that you can rule people through speeches, that unpopular people in the press or the academia would be made popular by television. Mm-hmm. And people would just do what they're told. Politicians would hear what intelligent people are saying and parrot it. You would achieve indirect rule, and it would be rational without having to make the people any more rational. They would just be more passive, obedient, more compliant. I think that most of that is crashing down. Well, this was the experience of, I think, the best social critics of the 60s and 70s. Marshall McLuhan found himself becoming a guru, didn't like it. What he was trying to communicate was not being communicated successfully, and he pulled the ripcord. Philip Reef specifically and explicitly reacted against what he saw as the threat of becoming guruized, and he pulled the ripcord. And Christopher Lash, same thing. He made it all the way, you know, in Jimmy Carter's speech. And instead of it being this sort of salutary reminder that Lash was trying to get across to people in his books, it became the subject of every sort of joke about Carter and put on a sweater because you're cold and malaise and the whole thing. All three of those guys, very far-seeing and perceptive social critics, all of them encountered a certain amount of fame and influence, and all of them were either pushed away from it or pulled themselves out of it. And that's now happening for a broader class of people, for young people raised on the idea that the way to exercise agency and identity in the world was to become a critic or to become someone who churns out content that is fodder for critics. They're discovering that it's just not so. And, you know, and I know that here, here are you and I sort of engaged in this critical enterprise on a podcast. You know, what could be more hypocritical than to criticize the critics on a show of criticism? But I think the response to that is like, well, the reason why we're doing this is because we have a sort of um, alternative insight and we're interested in tracking not just the collapse of the critical enterprise as this sort of mass economy and social order, but tracking what's rising in its place and how to maintain some degree of social cohesion through that transformative process. Yeah, there is room for a new chastened form of criticism that doesn't believe in indirect rule. People who think that stuff that they say will transform people's beliefs and fantasies and therefore will create a new world are nutcases. And at this point, the only people who really seem to engage in that are the people who think that they can turn themselves into objects of hatred and thus amass power, monetize hatred on a per-click basis. And those are the saddest cases of all. Well, and again, it's just that you can see people hitting this point of diminishing returns where, you know, the Twitter experience started out as, my God, I can tell anyone what's on my mind. And then it became, no one cares about what I have to say or even who I am, except those who hate people like me most. Yep. So, you know, if you're very, very good at doing that, at playing that game, you can make a living off of it, you know, to some degree. But it takes tremendous energy and effort and a willingness to be a target. And for the vast majority of people, regardless of your station in life, it's just not worth it. It's just negative value. You know, you are literally better off just sort of like watching Golden Girls reruns or whatever you want to be doing. Sitting there to take a nap, you know, like it's just not worth it. And so who is it worth it for or who, you know, is in a position where it occurs to them as being worth it? Well, it's the mentally unstable, it's the losers, 
again, regardless of sort of your partisan leaning or your ideology, although, you know, the burden, again, is falling repeatedly on people who have these sort of, I mean, even our, whoever this guy in New Zealand was, right, he puts out his manifesto, and, you know, there's something in there for everyone. Oh, look, he's an environmentalist. It's the crazy environmentalist. Oh, look, he's a natalist. It's those crazy, you know, breeders. Like, no, look, he says that, you know, we march forward together forever. Like, he's clearly a progressive. No, he's a Nazi. No, Well, it's all, it's this grab bag, sort of ecumenically fantasist right and it's the fantasists who were educated not through schooling but through swimming around in this context that the elite has created for them it's these fantasists who can't make money off of this can't get rich off of it aren't protected by an institution but they still believe that the magic works you know that if they drink the kool-aid they'll get the intended result and it's just not very effective. I mean, it's horrendously effective on the scale of snuffing out 50, 100 lives, making a splash on the internet for a day or two. But I was looking back, you know, at sort of the last high-profile assassination in 2016 in Istanbul, where some forgotten guy in a suit just marched in to, I think, an art gallery and carried out his assassination. And, you know, it was big news for a day or two, and now just utterly, utterly forgotten. And so even when pushed to the extreme of, you know, well, surely if I kill many innocent people and I publish a multi-hundred page screed that I've worked on for years, you know, surely that will give my fantasy uh, potency in the world. And in fact, the answer is no, not really. Yeah. Even political violence has become meaningless. It is a shocking statement, and there are still a lot of people who, because of their partisan fantasies, wouldn't accept it. But indeed, these things happen, and they just disappear. That's the way things are. It's hard to deal with because it seems to be emptying out everything that we've been building up towards for so long. We were supposed to have better speeches, and they were supposed to get more powerful. They were supposed to aggregate us democratically and transform us through the power of technology. And they're not. They're mostly meaningless. And that's a hard thing to live with. In a way, this is the time for Reef and Lash. This is the time for McLuhan, for people who take cultural criticism very seriously. Because it's more believable now that we're not really in control of what's going on. And the fantasies that will extract power out of noticing something and talking about it are dwindling. This is another part where entertainment, speechifying, is losing its power, and there aren't going to be any more celebrities of this kind either. Who knows what things are going to look like, but it's not going to be this. It's not going to be generalized celebrity. You know, Twitter was supposed to reproduce the well-beloved American phenomenon of the lottery. One mm. day, what you say goes viral. Mm -hmm. There's no rhyme or reason to it, but you among the millions, or hundreds of millions, are chosen. It's fate. But it's not. Anything that goes viral is as meaningless as anything that doesn't, and more importantly, it has no consequences. However much stuff you throw in, nothing comes out. And so I think we have to view the potential threat of a sort of resurgence of fascism or Nazism through this lens. Of course, you know, we don't want there to be more people who would identify themselves as national socialists, right? Like, nobody wants that. But there was a time, not long ago, when people were genuinely worried about the malign influence of Catholics on democratic politics. This was like a cognizable threat to them. 
oh my god, if John Kennedy is elected president, he's going to be taking orders from the Vatican. He's going to hurt democracy. There was a time, you know, still not that long ago, when people were genuinely worried that monarchists were a political threat to democratic politics. Or, you know, people who wanted to bring back the empire, you know, or people who wanted a military coup, a military government. And still in some places, that's in play. But for most Americans, you know, those things are not at all threatening. You know, no one is worried about popish plots to seize control in Washington. There are a few people who are concerned that Opus Dei has too much influence. But then, you know, with, with Scalia's passing, even that is not that big of a meme. And yet there's this meme today that, oh, the Nazis are coming back. And the number one thing to be frightened about, just as it says in the back of Tim Wu's little book, is that we're going to repeat the signature errors of the 20th century. You know, we need to be vigilant or else the Nazis are going to come back. And given what I think you accurately described as this evisceration of mythic force, you know, myth going back to the Greek word for mouth, it's just very hard for me to see how that's going to be a true threat to certainly American politics, especially at a time when the rise of the robots is what's plunging our critics into territory so opaque and shadowy to them that they will gratefully clutch onto anything that feels remotely familiar to them as a handle for orienting themselves up to and including this potential resurgence of real fascism. Yeah, it's worth noticing that only people who profess to be afraid of these things can entertain them even as fantasies. There are no groups that entertain them as desirable fantasies. Mm. And in a certain way, the nightmare is the last residue of whatever past event, of whatever experience recollected. And Mm -hmm. what should be worrying people who are terrified about fascism or Nazis or what have you is that we don't really have fantasies about political association that's Mm -hmm. there's no view of threats to come because there's no view of future action collective concerted purposeful we just don't know that is not all bad a lot of it comes down to commonsensical american skepticism people aren't in fact signing up for some new cult and that's good news it's reliable news except for hysterics but it is good news that people aren't taking their craziness out on society They're not saying, I'm quitting democracy and from now on, let's start the human sacrifices again or whatever will completely (laughs) cut us free from this old democracy. That's not happening. People are tethered to it and they still experience it as more reassuring a better home than whatever else there might be. That's right. And we know, you know, that the occult in the West was an electric age phenomenon. Go back to Victorian England, go back to Aleister Crowley, you know, here's Jack Parsons. Like, we know that occultism in the West was driven by electricity. You see it in the Nazis, you see it in the lightning bolts, you see it in trying to get to Tibet and working on a rocket program at the same time. It's all of a piece. And it's going to be disorienting to be thrust into a world where you just have this residue of the nightmare of the cult lasting, you know, sort of like what Nietzsche said about the shadow of God still persisting after God himself is dead, right? This is what's going to happen with the cults. And, you know, and I think it's not too huge of a stretch to say that someone like Stanley Kubrick understood this. In 1969, it was a space odyssey. And in 1999, uh, it was Eyes Wide Shut, where the cult and the nightmare were presented as basically the same now. The nightmare and the cult had converged, and the only place that you would find the cult was in fantasy, in the deepest recesses of fantasy. And that's, you know, part of the experience of luxury. 
It is not mm, part of right. the experience of common life. Right. And it's just not going to return. As Ballard put it, all that's left is willed madness. Yeah, exactly. Everybody else is satisfied with cosplay if they're going to indulge in it. And they take the shoddiness of the experience as part of the fact that it's not really real. You shouldn't be investing yourself in it. The limits to madness, I think, more or less, that's where they are. Things like cosplay, not things like a resurgence of uh, fascism or what have you. Again, it makes it difficult on the one hand because we don't quite know what future action is going to be like. On the other hand, it makes it difficult because it shows a certain unwillingness to think about more fearful things. Like you mentioned the robots. There's going to be way less talk than there should be about a computer deciding to kill a couple of hundred people mm. by not letting the pilot take control of the airplane. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the adequate myth for the robot is the old fantasy of electric ghosts and you know frankensteins and things like that that had a good 200 year run mm-hmm. more or less and the hope that you could power up death and get something out of it but it's not the same thing as what's fearful about robots that's evacuating human agency having decisions made that maybe aren't even decisions anymore mm-hmm Yeah, could create something that's not natural, but it's not artificial, as hitherto understood either. It doesn't have a human component. And then it's not just artificial, but it has an alien component, too. Something like War of the Worlds gets gestures in that direction, where, you know, you've got the tripods of Hephaestus have become monsters, you know, from another planet. But myth is only going to get us so far, and I think people who try to fall back on myth to process the robots, I don't think they're going to be very, very heartened or successful. Yeah, I think it would be more fruitful to reflect on the extent to which what we have comes out of the imagination of mid-century liberalism. I don't know what the shape of things to come is, but one of the things that brought about the end of history was a preference for non-human decision-making, taking indirect rule to what we now call algorithms, taking Mm -hmm. rational control to mean a certain hatred of being human, and a certain inability to tolerate human beings and their decisions and the strange things that people do. And Mm -hmm. that's, to some extent, on display. It's weird to have people as young as Mark Zuckerberg think about selling people on algorithms and selling people on this sort of globalized friendship. You'd think that it was not really what he might uh, expect the future to be if he wanted to be part of the future. It's not in any way personal to him or his generation. It doesn't have any of the American hallmarks of innovation or breakthrough or achievement. It's just rehashing the stupidest parts of celebrity culture. Mm -hmm. But there it is, and people cannot quite get rid of it yet, I assume. People will get rid of it, give it another five years or so. But the underlying idea that maybe it's better not to be human. Right, that being human is is ultimately bad news. Yeah, I like to joke around with some of my Catholic friends that we're back to Egypt where the elites are cryogenizing or mummifying themselves <laughs> and the masses worship animal gods. Yeah. Because at least mm. the animals aren't restless, bored, fearful of their own mortality. Mm. That is the bigger problem, that at some level it is related to willed madness. What if it would be better to stop making human decisions and mm-hmm. stop taking responsibility for being human? Mm-hmm. This is where the fact that we're not definite on any forms of collective action for the future could hurt. Right. It seems like uh, it slips in by default. 
Right. And I don't want to expose myself at all to any accusation of relativism as far as something like natural right is concerned, because, you know, obviously the philosophical brief is quite simple, which is, hey, humans are political animals. If you remove politics from human life, you are messing with our anthropology and running counter to nature. And once you start talking about what politics is, then, you know, you're going to inevitably sort of develop at least some concept of what anthropological equipment we bring to the enterprise of politics. And then you're going to be having a conversation about nature and about what inherent capabilities need to be naturally expressed by human beings in order for politics to function, regardless of what kind of regime you're in, unless it's the most rank and and abject despotism. So yes, natural right is accessible to human beings in virtue of their anthropological toolkit. That's that. But clearly, the way that politics is going to develop for communities that are trying to find their way out of that kind of Egyptian trap will differ depending on sort of the people and the circumstances. And just over time, like we've seen, for instance, the different ways in which the Israelites and Jews grappled with politics spinning out of the trauma of Egypt and out of the sort of totalizing, suffocating character of Egyptian despotism. And, you know, that's going to have an impact on the way nationalism is handled or develops in the Mideast and in Europe. And it's going to continue to shape, you know, not just the discussion of what a nation is, but of what a people is. Right? That's like another sort of important political term that I don't think we've gotten to yet. And obviously, we don't have time to spend an hour on what a people is. Yeah. But people, you know, people want to know. Inquiring minds want to know what a people <laughs> is. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the theme today has been what's going on with our elites what has happened with our history and what has happened with our mm -hmm. technology, we'll maybe do another conversation another time about the people. The people in the elites are always complementary in strange ways. It does seem like whatever new elites come up will have to be more populist elites. And that is to say less obsessed with rational control, less obsessed with keeping the people at bay, maybe even less obsessed with avoiding the people personally. <laughs> I think Foucault was quite right when he put the concept of hygiene and moral hygiene at the center of his analyses of power and who has power and what it means to wield power and how power can become quite soft, even as it becomes more potent. But yeah, and so, you know, the elites are going to need a new understanding of hygiene, you know, if they don't want to end up themselves being disenchanted, you know, themselves being confronted with this unsolvable question of why bother. Yeah, so far it's the crisis, the dying off of an entire technological system, which Marshall McLuhan called the televisual, mm -hmm. which is a fantasy projection and it works through celebrities in a society. That's a sign of the future. And it is the agonies of inefficient politics, ineffective politics, politics that doesn't even look like politics, that suggests that changes are coming. Mm -hmm. What they will be much harder to say and that probably depends more on the character of the people than it does on the character of the elites mm -hmm. well james this has been a long and i hope fruitful conversation for our audience it's certainly given me the chance to formulate things and to try to understand better what it is that we have to offer together as it were and i think we have other friends who are also interested in for example McLuhan and reef and lash and mm -hmm. cultural critics at that level this may be a good time for this, and hopefully it'll lead to some insight. Well, I, this is just about all I think about now, so I hope very much that you're right. <laughs> Thanks, all the best, and let's maybe do another one about the people as opposed to the elite. Sure, let's do it. 
Bye-bye. Cheers. All right. See you later.